Hello, my name is Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price. I'm a medical oncologist at the Ottawa Hospital and immediate past president of Lung Cancer Canada. Welcome to our podcast series called Lung Cancer Voices. In this series, I'll be interviewing patients, caregivers, healthcare professionals, and some of the leading lung cancer researchers in the country and indeed in the world to highlight important and relevant issues facing those affected by lung cancer. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to this episode of Lung Cancer Voices, and I'm delighted to be welcoming back friend of the show, Professor Natasha Lale. Natasha, welcome. Natasha is a professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. She is the OSI Pharmaceuticals Foundation Chair at the Princess Margaret Cancer Centre, where she is a staff medical oncologist and head of the lung cancer group. And I say internationally well known because really, Natasha, you are and you know, you are have leadership roles at ASCO and ESMO and published goodness knows how many, probably hundreds of times in the medical literature and a go-to leader in lung cancer for all of us in, in Canada. So I hope I'm not making you blush, but uh, welcome. I'm delighted that you're on the pod. Thank you so much, Paul. It's a real treat to be back here again. If you, yes, yeah, so Natasha's like, as I said, friend of the pod previously was on a, an episode which is sort of linked to today's topic. So a few years ago, Dr. Lael and another friend of the podcast, Dr. Gandara, who's been on the, on the show a couple of times, they talked about uh, testing for lung cancer and particularly testing with blood tests rather than biopsies. And today we're talking about a difficult topic, which is how to deal with cancers that become resistant to their initial treatment. And we've had a lot of uh, requests from uh, patients and family members who listen to this podcast for this episode. And so Natasha, thank you for, again for joining and thank you for taking on this topic because it's a difficult one. To set the scene, I think what we'll do is just do a, maybe a, we're gonna do a brief uh, sort of background on uh, targeted therapies in lung cancer, because that's really the area we're gonna be talking about. What, what are they, who gets them, what are the standard treatments? And, and then we'll be getting into, uh, we're gonna call it the where and the why of, of resistance. So Natasha, could you start by just walking us through what, what are targeted therapies and, and those types of lung cancer? Sure, thanks Paul. So today when a person starts uh, that journey to deciding lung cancer treatment, I think of it in, in three big groups. People who, uh, because we have specific gene targets identified in their lung cancer, they can have targeted therapy. People who are whose cancer may be very sensitive to immune therapy. And then people where some combination of chemotherapy with or without immunotherapy is, is still the mainstay, especially if somebody has more advanced or, or stage four lung cancer. And so today for targeted therapy, you know, when I first started, we had no targeted therapies, we only had chemotherapy, but now we actually have nine classes of targeted therapy. I'm not gonna run through them all, very common ones that people are familiar with are um, alterations in the EGFR, or epidermal growth factor receptor gene, um, ALK fusion proteins, anaplastic lymphomachinase, and, and ROS1 fusions, there, there are a number of others, there are nine in total. And the way we find these, and it's great in Canada now that everybody 
has, or almost everybody has access to this testing, is through genetic testing of the cancer uh, called next generation sequencing. And it's been really great to see this emerge as something that's now routinely done, especially for people that present with um, a, a diagnosis of advanced lung cancer. So, and, go ahead. And, and we just uh, clarify that yeah. this is what, what, there's lots of different types of lung cancer. We're talking about non small cell lung cancer rather than small cell lung cancer. Absolutely. And I think, unfortunately, we're a little further behind in, in figuring out the molecular drivers of small cell lung cancer. But I'm hoping in a couple of years, Paul, you and I will be talking about the great progress we're making in that too. And so, you know, targeted therapies uh, in lung cancer, we've been so lucky because they're not chemotherapy. Often they don't have the classic side effects, you know, nausea, vomiting, hair loss, you know, dropping your blood counts, putting you at risk of fever, but they tend to be much more focused on destroying cancer cells and having much less of a, an effect on people's normal tissue. So we think of them on balance as being, you know, as having fewer side effects. Often they're tablets, but not always. Um, and so, of course, there's much more convenience. And so, you know, I think everyone's always so excited in clinic when we can say that, oh, yes, um, you know, we, we met this person and they are a candidate for targeted therapy. Right. And, and is there a, could you just maybe put a sort of a number on this? Uh, you said the three groups, there's the targeted therapy group, the immunotherapy group, and then the group where chemotherapy maybe with immunotherapy is the right option. What's the sort of breakdown so I would say with all the targets and targeted therapies that we have today, probably about half of Canadians with non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer have uh, one of these targets in their lung cancer where there is a targeted therapy. Now, we might not necessarily start with the targeted therapy. Sometimes people would have chemotherapy or immunotherapy first, but for many patients, you would start with target therapy. So that's up to about half. And again, depending on where you live, those numbers change a little bit. Probably about a quarter, uh, you know, uh, maybe even less, maybe 20% of people are candidates for immune therapy just by itself. And then everyone else, you know, some form of a combination with chemotherapy, usually with immune therapy is, is important. Right. So at Princess Margaret Cancer Center, it's about 50%. Is it? I, I think in Ottawa, it's probably closer to 30%, 35% maybe where we find a driver mutation, but different populations and, and you're higher than us. Yes, I mean, we and, and this 50% has come from some studies published in the US and also across Canada and our own experience where we introduced this, you know, special genetic testing called NGS or next generation sequencing. And we actually found that 54% of our patients had a targetable um, alteration or had one of these genetic abnormalities. And so it was so exciting for us that just by doing this testing, you know, at least one in two people could have a targeted therapy, whereas before, you know, it was only maybe one in four uh, or one in five people where we found a target. So this, this use of this NGS testing has really made a big difference for patients. Right. Yeah, it's been amazing. And and, and now, as you said, most, uh, well, we, we, we really advocate for every lung cancer patient across the country to have access to NGS testing. And there have been huge advances in actually delivering that now. So that's been really positive you're you're the you're my guest natasha so you get to say the nice stuff and then and then maybe i'll just have i'll i'll be a, a the sober reality check so of those 50 percent though we know that you know you mentioned nine driver mutations now 
and some maybe like the KRAS one, which is quite common, isn't maybe not a first line option. It may be that chemo or immunotherapy first and then KRAS. But not all of these drugs or all of these nine mutations have drugs that are all the way through the regulatory system and the research programs and are just easy to prescribe and, and sort of standard now. Some of them are still at, at various phases of development. Is, is that right? Yes, and I think it's such a challenge. You know, I think in Canada, and you've published a lot of work on this, Paul, there's still that challenge between, you know, discovering a drug, knowing that it works really well, learning that it's been approved in the United States for people with similar kinds of lung cancer, but we still don't have it in Canada. And and again, you've published really great work on this. If there's anybody listening, I recommend that you Google some of Paul's papers. But, you know, Health Canada can approve something and say, you know, this works well, it's safe. But then, of course, it has to be funded. Otherwise, you know, truly, these drugs all cost, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars per month. And it's a real challenge if it's not funded. And so, you know, of the nine targets, we have Health Canada approved drugs for lung cancer patients for eight of them. One of them, the approval is still working its way through. It is now approved in the U.S. um, and Europe. But in terms of funding... That's much more variable. And I would say that we have reliable funding for uh, four out of the nine and for the remaining four that are approved, um, but not yet funded, it's, it's been a real struggle, you know? And so for a lot of our patients, whether it's a compassionate program, whether it's a clinical trial, or sometimes, you know, we are just stuck with our old therapies, you know, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, which can sometimes also be very effective. You know, that that's a very hard reality for, for all of us patients and, and providers alike. And, and we have a very literate audience who listen to this. So just to go through some of those nine, we have public funding for EGFR, you mentioned ALK, ROS1, and NTRK. We do not have public funding for BRAF, which is a big problem at the moment. We don't have public funding for the MET Exxon 14 mutations. And for both of those, it's unclear the path to funding. So there's a lot of advocacy work in the background. And then RET fusion, no funding, but that is looking more positive that that's working its way nicely through and we can access those drugs now. Now I'm probably missing KRAS um, is working its way through um so we hope to get funding for that but it's not yet and i'm not quite sure if i've counted them all now her two and and yeah i think her b2 or her two that's the one that's not yet through health canada no huge need of course amongst um our patients and we're still you know really struggling with trials um, and some patients even private pay which has been really really tough yeah Okay, so all right, so if you're listening and you want to now just pause and put the kettle on, that's part one, which is, you know, what is targeted therapies and access and how common and, and the NGS testing to identify them. And, and now in the next section, we're really going to talk about really the meat of, of our podcast today, which is what happens when somebody's on one of these drugs and it stops working and re- so resistance develops. And I think for this, uh, Natasha, we'd probably better restrict ourselves to the sort of EGFR and ALK groups where 
you know, we 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 have had these drugs widely available for a number of years. So, you know, we've learned because people have been on them, and then resistance has occurred, and we've had to figure out what to do. For some of the other ones that you mentioned, where we're still fighting to get first line access, actually getting then resistance sorted out is is a little bit on the horizon still. So let let's go with sort of the, let's start with EGFR lung cancer. And the standard first-line treatment now across Canada is this drug called osimertinib, or Tegrisso is its brand name. And for most people, they, they take a single 80 milligram tablet once a day, and it's overwhelmingly likely to get the cancer under control, often very, very rapidly, and control the cancer then for, for how long, Natasha, would, this, would you say to Grisso or else osimertinib works in your experience? So I would say on average, people are on this as the initial treatment for anywhere from a year and a half on average to longer. And, you know, these averages are hard, right? They don't necessarily apply to one person. Some people can get up to a year and a half. Some people can be on for much, much longer. And, you know, we do have patients that have been on for, for several years now, but I would say that that's about the average. But is it is it fair to say, and again, I don't want to sound too depressing, but we also need to be sort of truthful here. Is it is it inevitable that someone on who's receiving osimertinib that resistance will develop at some point, or are there some people where that's not inevitable? So unfortunately, in our experience so far people do progress. At some point, these targeted therapies stop working. We can talk a little bit about, you know, some of the scientific reasons why we think that is. But, you know, when someone starts that journey with me and they start in the osimertinib, I do warn them that eventually some of the cancer cells, you know, very similar to chemotherapy or immune therapy, they outsmart that targeted therapy. And then the question for me always is, well, where is this resistance occurring? And I'll talk a bit about sort of like why I think where is very important. Why is the resistance occurring? Like what are the underlying reasons for this? And finally, how do we overcome this? You know, how do we get someone back into good cancer control? Okay. And I mentioned that at the beginning that we were going to get to this, the where and the why, and we're then going to add in the, I guess, what next or so what? So, well, which do you want to start with? The where? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, if, if, if you develop resistance or if someone develops resistance, you or me, you know, one of the questions is, okay, where is it exactly? Because there are different treatment approaches. So some people, you know, their cancer grows in just one spot, despite the targeted therapy. Sometimes that can be in the brain. And sometimes what that actually is, is it's a failure of the drugs to get into the brain tissue. Well, now, you know, I think for people, who aren't familiar with the fact that lung cancer can go to the brain, like that's scary and terrifying. What's good news about that is that, you know, we found that especially with targeted therapies, these drugs can get into brain, they can help protect people, they can lead to shrinkage for a period of time, and that people even with spread to brain can do you know, quite well, similar to people who don't have involvement of, of brain. So, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's terrifying, but it can be treated. And so, you know, I just want to kind of provide that, that reassurance. So if something happens in the brain the question is, you know, does, is your osimertinib dose high enough? Maybe it needs to go higher. There's been some benefit with that approach. 
could a little radiation treatment, especially you know stereotactic or gamma knife tr treatment, help drug get in there better, help control things? So that's another question. So maybe you could stay on the same drug, but have a little radiation or local treatment. Maybe you could increase your dose. If you haven't been taking your drug, maybe you could sort of look at reasons why you should go back to taking your drug and how do we support you, you know, taking the right dose. Sometimes also, you know, if you've got growth in one area, like let's say a spot in the lung or a spot in the spine or even a few spots, that too could be treated with radiation and you could stay on the osimertinib or, or whichever drug, electinib or latinib, whatever it is that you're on. So, so these local approaches, I think are really important for patients to really keep you on targeted therapy, keep you with the best possible quality of life and cancer control. Right. Thank you. And you, you know, Natasha, and I know that this is the best podcast ever. And so not only educating people about lung cancer, but there's also a bit of Greek. So I'm going to teach people a bit of Greek because you might see in, uh, if, if you're going through this, that this phrase oligo progression, which is what Natasha is talking about. So oligo uh, is, is Greek for a few. So what you're talking about here, Natasha, is this, is this idea of oligo progression where the cancer is generally under control from the osimertinib, but there is oligo progression, like one or a few spots that are growing. And so what you're saying is take care of the oligo progression areas with another technique, radiotherapy, surgery, and then still be able to continue the osimertinib because it's generally controlling the bulk of the disease. Is that a fair summary? Absolutely, absolutely. And a very good lesson in Greek as well. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> and, and then Usually course, it's all Greek to me, but uh, you know, <laughs> once in a while I come up trumps. And the other side of course is, you know, the opposite of oligo is poly. So right. if someone has multiple areas where the cancer is growing, or if for some reason we think that local treatment or sort of, you know, some spot radiotherapy or something isn't going to be helpful, that's when we probably need to, you know, either do a combination of treatments, maybe some radiation and change drug therapy or, or just change drug therapy. And this is when the why starts to become very important. Our standard is chemotherapy. Chemotherapy is much more manageable these days than it ever has been before. Um, and I often find that people are quite surprised at how well they do on chemo. And chemotherapy can really work for, for people with, you know, after target therapy stops working. But, but nobody likes it. Everybody prefers a targeted approach. And so, of course, that's why we're really working on the why and what next. Okay. So, okay, well, how do you figure out the why? So, you know, we have been encouraging people with progression in their cancer to undergo what we call molecular characterization. So basically we ask people to have biopsies. So either a tissue biopsy of their cancer, very similar to when they were first diagnosed. So it can be done from, you know, from the outside, it can be done using uh, a bronchoscope. We even have things called liquid biopsies or blood tests, which we've talked about before. And these, these are all important, you know, they're, there are different ways that the cancer can outsmart osimertinib or, or any of the targeted therapies. So there can be a change in the original gene. So if the, you, know, you had a mutation in the EGFR gene, you know, there can be a new mutation that changes everything about what, the way the drug binds, the way the cancer signals, and really blocks osimertinib from being able to control the cancer. There are new genes that can emerge, which, you know, I think for us is like really astounding. So 
we can see in particular a very common gene for all of the types of targeted therapies is MET, mesenchymal epithelial uh, transition, uh, where we really see this signaling through MET. People can have what's called MET amplification. So lots of extra copies of the MET gene all of a sudden have developed, or even just other types of MET signaling. People can even have new things. So somebody with EGFR who's not supposed to have a red alteration can suddenly have both when the cancer stops working. So you can see some of these, we call them emergent alterations or fusions. You know, the other day we had a patient with a BRAF mutation as well as their original EGFR mutation. And so, you know, what do we do there? Maybe we could double down and give somebody both something with a target EGFR plus this new alteration. But, you know, there are two other types of things. One of them has really been surprising for us. I think it was first described in 2011, where you know we know that many patients, for example, with EGFR mutant lung cancer, some people do have a history of tobacco exposure, but many people don't. And one of the cancers that's classic for smoking exposure is small cell lung cancer. And we started to see that people after their treatments, their targeted treatments stopped working, they started developing small cell lung cancer. And it really had us baffled. We've seen this now across all the targeted therapy subtypes. We see small cell lung cancer emerging. We see squamous cell lung cancer emerging. And I think what that really teaches me is how little we understand about the origins of cancer. But again, that's very important, you know, because we would treat that differently, different chemo, a different approach, maybe even surgery, radiotherapy. But that's important to know. And we're only going to know that if we ask why and do the biopsy. And finally, there's an alphabet, you know, soup list of other alterations these sort of downstream signaling pathways where we really haven't quite figured out how to target that yet. So, you know, this group where, okay, we've got something we recognize, we can target two things, METs, reps, things like that, maybe change the kind of EGFR inhibitor if there's something in the EGFR gene, completely different kind of cancer all of a sudden, you know, that EGFR mutant lung cancer is still in there, but maybe different chemo or something different to approach that. And then kind of the big box of, we're not quite sure how to fix this. Okay. Okay, so we've, we've covered where, oligoprogression or polyprogression, and we've covered why and the need for a new biopsy or blood test to identify whether the cancer's completely changed, like you said, to a small cell line cancer or whether there's a new mutation. I, I want to just shift a little bit to sort of a pragmatic approach here. So you're at Princess Margaret Cancer Center, which is maybe has more resources than some other cancer centers. So I'm going to ask you two questions about access. The first one, one is going to be, is it easy to access this additional testing to figure out the why? And then the second thing is, if you find something with your why question, is it easy to access what you can do about it? Does that make sense? So the first question is accessing the why. Is it easy to get this molecular characterization done? Thanks, Paul. As always, these are these are the exact questions that we struggle with every day. So doing a biopsy is possible in the Canadian system. And I think a number of us across the country, including yourself, you know, we, we really believe that these repeat tissue biopsies with the needles are important so that we're not missing a new small cell cancer or something like that. So, so that can be done. And whether or not there's like a new type of lung cancer emerging, like small cell or squamous, that can be done within, you know, all of the healthcare systems across Canada. The molecular testing is a little more challenging at Princess Margaret. Um, you know, we've worked with donors and different groups so that we can do this. And I think a number of pathologists and other hospitals are, are really trying to find ways 
um, that we can still do this. Things like liquid biopsy, not yet funded, really still part of trials or in-house programs. And one of the challenges with resistance is they're probably both important, right? You'll find some things in tissue, probably don't find everything in tissue. You'll find some things in plasma or liquid biopsy. And then whether you do this same kind of next generation sequencing or NGS testing versus other things, you know, it's become very complex. So the dream is you get, you know, as much information using as many of these methods as possible. The reality is it might be that a biopsy is the most you could do. Not everybody can have a biopsy. Not everybody wants one. And, you know, I, I don't blame them. These are difficult procedures. They're not without risk. And so there's a real range across the country in terms of what's potentially available. I think everybody could get at least a biopsy, but it, it has to be safe. I don't know, Paul, is that, is that your experience in Ottawa? Yes, I, uh, yeah, I got to say, I think it's patchy and it, it really depends on, on the, the person, but increasingly, yes, we, we're looking to get those new biopsies and we've fortunate to be able to then request the new molecular molecular testing to see these mutations. So I don't think it's as widespread in the country as we would like it to be for those of us who sort of live and breathe lung cancer. And But it's uh, it's certainly on, on the up. I think one of the things that we're looking to do more of is the liquid biopsies on progression because they're just so much easier. So for example, as you mentioned, if uh, the example of someone who has oligoprogression, let's say in the brain, well, that's that's pretty tricky to to biopsy, and and so being able to do blood tests may be the way forward. So let let's go to the second access question, just for the sake of moving along with our discussion. The second access question is what? Well, so you find something. So you mentioned MET amplification as as a common resistance mechanism, and what do you do with that then, Natasha? How do you how do you approach the result? Thanks. And you know, the what next is is so hard in the public Canadian system. So what we have available for people is we have chemotherapy, which works, but you know, people would rather try something else first if they could. And then of course, radiation and, you know, potentially surgery where that's appropriate. It's, it's, it's only very limited, right? So it's, we're not talking about curative surgery. We're just talking about, you know, very focused surgery to fix a specific problem. Clinical trials and compassionate programs are really the mainstay. And so, for example, if I have a patient with med amplification, we have some trials the trials can be challenging, right? There are a lot of rules to getting into a trial. Someone can come, you know, I saw somebody yesterday and because she didn't get her molecular testing until after she'd had to start chemotherapy, none of our trials will take her no matter how much I beg all of the different people that run the trials. So, you know, some of us have developed basket trials. Um, the Canadian Cancer Trials Group also has a basket trial where, you know, we try to get people access to these new therapies. I have a study, for example, where people with med amplification can access, it's an old drug, but it works, uh, and then they can continue with their original target therapy. So we've been able to get some people on that. You know, we try and support other groups that want to do similar things. And then, of course, that huge clinical trials machine. And so I think when you have resistance, one of the things you want to be asking your doctor is, okay, Let's figure out, you know, tell me where, so I understand, what can we do about it? Help me figure out the why as, you know, in a way that I'm comfortable with, biopsy or liquid biopsy or can access. And then as we overcome it, what are my trial options? Where do I need to go? 
And then what are my, you know, are there compassionate programs? Are there other things when the trials fall down? And, and they often do for our patients for reasons that have nothing to do with patients that are just life. Yeah. Yeah. I, there's no getting away from it. This is a really difficult scenario for patients and for us as clinicians when we're faced with them. I also had a situation yesterday of someone progressing on osimertinib who for, in my mind, a very spurious inconsequential reason is going to be blocked from entering a, a, a research study. And so there is a, a, a separate group of us that are looking to build an advocacy effort to make clinical trials far more appropriately accessible for patients without some of the seemingly unfathomable reasons that, that some patients are excluded. Some, some uh, you know, there's good safety reasons why some people shouldn't go on a research study with an experimental drug, but there seem to be some reasons which don't don't make a lot of sense. So we're, we're going to be doing a bit of fighting for that. Natasha, just, to, just before we round up, a lot of people with some of the targeted therapy type lung cancers, EGFR and ALK and ROS1, when there is progression, I often get asked about immunotherapy. And so what about trying immunotherapy? And and, and I normally say it's maybe not the right idea, but what do you think about immunotherapy in, in these situations? Yeah. You know, and I think when we're trying to overcome targeted therapy resistance, for most people with oncogene-addicted cancers or the, these kind of targetable abnormalities, it, it just has not yet worked. You know, we've heard about one patient with EGFR mutant lung cancer, and he had a specially designed T-cell and that worked for him, but that's one among thousands. And so we've now done several large studies where we looked at chemo, plus or minus chemo immuno. Immuno didn't work. We've looked at lots of patients where we just use immuno. Everybody has one great story. If you go back and you look at the tumor, they actually never had the target in the first place. They had just regular regular non-EGFR blood cancer. And so, so I, I leave that till the very end. It's not to say that you should never have it, but I leave it to the end. There are also some potential you know, side effects and issues if you combine targeted therapy and immunotherapy. But you know, I, I really think that where you can target it, you know, there are things that, you know, there are these new fourth generation EGFR inhibitors, for example, or adding multiple drugs together. For example, if you have 797X or 724S, if you have an emergent RET fusion or BRAF E600D, maybe you add targeted therapies onto your EGFR inhibitor. But then there's this great, there's this great growing group of drugs, again, in trials, you know, antibody drug conjugates, you know, special um, antibody and small molecule combinations where, you know, you probably, we, it seems to work against everything, uh, or at least in a third of people. And so, so I think there are these different approaches that are emerging for sort of like a, a still a targeted approach. And then this non-targeted approach for people who don't have the targets and we're still figuring out, you know, outside of clinical trials, how do we struggle for access for people? And, and sadly, sometimes the answer is, you know what, we can't, we found out the why, we still can't make this work. We're gonna to have to do chemo for now, but we will still continue to advocate. This has been a wonderful flow through, Natasha, a really difficult topic. And maybe I could just add one personal, it's not an anecdote, but a comment is that I think it's worthwhile for if there are people listening to this who are on, on drugs and, and, and the resistance has occurred and you switch to something else or, or you're worried about resistance occurring on, on a more global quality of life scale, I think when, whenever somebody has cancer and there's, and, and there's a change, 
it, it is worthwhile sitting down with your family or, or your loved ones and just sort of taking stock and saying, okay, well, what's my next step? Some people don't want to do more treatments. They reach the threshold and they say, look, that's, I don't want to do anymore. And other people really do. And if you do, then as Natasha, you've outlined, as you know, Dr. Leo's suggestion of looking at the where and the why uh, is a, and, and having that discussion with your healthcare team is a really good way forward. There are lots of resources out there. You can check the lungcancercanada.ca website. There are lots of patient groups now for a lot of these driver mutations that you can also look at. So, for example, uh, the Ross Wonders, the T-H-E-R-O-S-1, DERS.org, the Ross Wonders. There's the EGFR or the EGF resistors, EGFRcancer.org. And there's similar patient groups for, for ALK and for you know, other driver mutations that are doing amazing work in education. So you can understand what's going on and what people are doing elsewhere. Also, uh, these groups are now funding research projects, which is amazing. So there's a lot of resources out there for this topic, which is really quite, quite tricky. KRAS Kickers, there's another one, all quite catchy. Natasha, do you have any final thoughts that we, we haven't covered, we should have covered, or, or things that you, know, you think are really important to, to highlight? You know, I think that understanding the, the where, really doing whatever you can with your provider to understand why, why your cancer stopped working. And then, of course, so important, this conquering the resistance and overcoming that how-to trials, if you possibly can. If you are stuck with chemo, you know what? It can work. And radiotherapy, I think, is, is really an amazing ally in this journey. While it is a setback, and I think, you know, it's important to sort of think about, okay, I've reached this particular point in my journey. Let's reevaluate everything. I, I want to remind you, this is a fast-moving field. We are starting to see amazing things, even in the setting of resistance. We are learning so much every day. Uh, new drug combinations coming through every month, new trials every month. And so I do want to reassure you that all the progress in this area will continue. And I really want to thank all the people with lung cancer and their advocates for helping us move this forward. You know, without your persistence to, to do better than the standard, you know, all of us in the clinic uh, who work on research and and provide patient care, we we couldn't make as much progress. And so I promise you it will continue and it'll get even faster. Thank you, Natasha. So from one past president of Lung Cancer Canada to another past president of Lung Cancer Canada, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Undoubtedly, we will be inviting you back uh, again in the future. And just that final word, as I normally say, if you've been listening, if you've heard something here, that does resonate or you would like more information about, please reach out to your own healthcare team or, or to the lungcancercanada.ca website. Until the next pod, have a good day. Thanks to our producer, Ryan Mullen. Please send us your feedback, like and follow us on Facebook at LungCan, on Twitter at LungCancer underscore Can, and on Instagram at LungCancerCanada. For more information about lung cancer or to donate, volunteer or share your story, visit our webpage at lungcancercanada.ca.